Well, there we go. Again, uh, more of uh, my comfort zone here uh, behind the pulpit rather than behind the guitar. What was that? Someone leave their phone. If you did, see Ken after the service. Awesome. <laughs> so the Olympics, uh, we got trouble over here, trouble. Uh, the Olympics uh, came to a conclusion uh, today. It's been a couple of weeks. They actually had uh, the closing ceremony, which would have been, I believe, 7 in the morning here um, in our time. Um, but I always enjoy uh, watching the Olympics. It's fun to watch the greatest athletes in the world, the best athletes, compete against one another as they represent uh, their respective countries. And it's cool to see the patriotism uh, that they have. And I like to watch the events themselves. My favorite events are the swimming. I love when the announcers, uh, they are getting really into it, and it's the last 50-meter stretch, and they are just hollering. We got a hand raised. Yes, I'm sorry, Junior Church is dismissed. Thank you. We are off our game today. Again, normally it's not Jamie and I up here. Normally we have our worship team who is much better prepared than I. So yes, thank you, Ben. So you can, if you want to, your kid, you can go out the doors and downstairs. Mark can show you guys the way. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Ben. So yeah, uh, the Olympics, I enjoy watching the events themselves, swimming, I enjoy uh, track and field, I enjoy uh, the basketball as well. But even more than watching the actual events themselves, I love, absolutely love to hear their backstory, you know, what life is like back at home for these different athletes. What inspired them to be an Olympic athlete? I like to see how their journey as an Olympic athlete started. You know, when they were little kids, a lot of them started when they were very young. And, and what uh, major events in their life have shaped their journey? A lot of them, they've lost a loved one, and that really provides encouragement to them. Some of them had to leave their kids behind, and so that encourages them, provides some inspiration. Um, and I also like to see what does their training regimen look like? I mean, these guys, they are dedicated to the sport that they are competing in. And so what does their day-to-day -day life look like as they are training for the Olympics? As all of these athletes, all the people that you see, um, all the uh, athletes competing, they have all put in the hard work to be there. Maybe to the exception of the speedwalkers. Does that really take much hard work? I don't know. Um, uh, but have you guys seen that, the speedwalkers in Olympics? I find that crazy. Um, but maybe the speedwalkers, I won't speak for them, but I'll speak for all the other athletes. They do, they do put in a lot, a lot of work. And with all of their hard work, they achieve much success in their fields of competition. They have all rose to the top in their respective countries. And we see with all of this success that they have uh, in, in their journey of being the greatest athlete possible, their identity then revolves around being an Olympic athlete. That is who they are. That is what is important to them, the success that they have experienced on the track or in the pool or on uh, the volleyball stand, wherever it may be, they identify themselves with that success. And this becomes a very unhealthy practice if we have this identity coincide with our success, our athletic success. Because eventually, uh, their, their success becomes more important 
than anything else in the world for a lot of these athletes. It becomes more important uh, than sometimes their family. Um, although I think in our American culture, we do a good job of valuing families. Um, it can prioritize over uh, their friends. But most importantly, with a lot, I'm not, I'm not speaking for all uh, athletes. There, there, are, there are a lot of good athletes out there. But there's this temptation with all of this great success that they have to prioritize their success over the relationship with God. And that, by definition, is an idol. And all of a sudden, this great success, this good success that they have had in their lives serves as an idol in their life. As we define the first week, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. And so we talked about our relationships, sometimes our spouses, sometimes our kids, our friends, family members, whomever it be. Sometimes they are more important to us than God. And if that's the case, then those relationships are an idol in your life. We talked about the big one last week, money. You know, in, in America, we, we love to talk about money. We work nine to five. Recently, trends are showing that, that people are working more and more, longer hours, more days, as we, we are thriving for that dollar bill. And when all of a sudden, when that money becomes more important to us, then that money is an idol in our life. As we continue this series combating our idols, the idol that we're going to be talking about this morning is the idol of success. You know, success, the, the idol of success is one of the most common idols in the world. But I think especially here in America, we struggle with this idol of success. As in America, we pride ourselves on the ability of anyone being able to rise to the top themselves. You know, we have that freedom. A lot of other countries, they don't have that freedom. Not everybody can rise the social ladder. But here in America, it's available to everyone, and we pride ourselves on that. A lot of people living outside of America, that's, what, that's their desire to move to the States because they want to, they want to have that ability to achieve success in whatever field that they are going after. And so I think success is an idol throughout the world, but especially here in America, I think we are dealing with this, this idol of success as it becomes more and more important to us, and eventually success can be even more important to us than God himself. You know, me personally, if I confess to you guys uh, this morning, me personally, I am someone who is driven uh, by success. I shared with you all before that in the Enneagram, a personality test, raise your hand if you've taken the Enneagram before. Not many of you guys. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, it, it, it's uh, great in finding more about who you are. And um, I'm a number three in the Enneagram, which stands for an achiever. And so I get emotional highs when I achieve success. And with these emotional highs when I achieve success, let me tell you, sometimes it's difficult not to make that success an idol in my life. Sometimes I want to prioritize that success over anything else, over my personal relationship with God. And so sometimes I find this temptation to make success an idol in my own life. And if I were to guess, I'm guessing some of you guys have similar experiences to me, where you may be highly driven by success or competition. We have any really competitive people out there. I love uh, competition. Do you have that drive to be the best at whatever you are doing? And sometimes when we achieve success, we approach it in all of the wrong manners. And this morning, we're going to take a look at someone in the scripture who struggled with this idol of success, and his name is Gideon. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of 
Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges. So near the beginning of your Bibles. And we're going to be uh, reading, uh, starting in Judges chapter 6, as we read about Gideon and his struggle with success. And as we talk about this idol of success, we must first all understand that success is not inherently evil. Just like money is not inherently evil. Just like your relationships with your spouse or children, they are not inherently evil. But, but they become bad when they become the ultimate things in our lives. So in Judges chapter 6, we read about a guy named Gideon who was a judge himself. Now, when we read about uh, the judges um, in the Bible and we think of our modern-day term judges, there is a difference there. In our modern day, when we think about the judge, we think about the judicial branch, and their sole duty is to determine whether someone is guilty or not, or if they're innocent. And if they are guilty, how long are they going to serve um, in jail or prison or whatever it may be? However, in the Israelite society, that's not what a judge was. A judge was like a local leader, which, and they, these local leaders really focus on the military. So in our modern day, in our perspective, in our glasses today, these judges are kind of like what you could view as a governor or a mayor. They, they're not ruling a full nation. Gideon, he wasn't ruling the full nation of Israel. But these different judges, they, they ruled over a local group of people. And a lot of them really focused heavily on the military as uh, also the, the society back then, all cultures focused on the military very highly. And so one of the more well-known uh, judges is Gideon. And Gideon came to the scene in chapter 6 when the foreign nation Midian caused the Israelites a lot, a lot of troubles. You know, the Israelites, they were constantly in battle. They're constantly having issues with these uh, foreign nations. And Midian was, was one of these nations that caused them many troubles. Well, the Israelites, they were disobedient to God. And so God gave the Israelites up to the Midianites, the nation of Midian. And so for seven full years, that's a long time. Seven, think about where you were seven years ago in, in, in 2015. 27 years ago, I was just beginning college. So, so a lot could take place in seven years. Well, seven years ago, they, they were overpowered by Midian. And while they were being overpowered by Midian, they were being mistreated. They, uh, Any time that the Israelites would grow up their crops and the Midian uh, people saw it, they would come down, they would cut it out, they would burn it, and they, were, they would dispose of it. The, these people abused the Israelites for seven full years. And so finally... The Israelites, they cannot take it anymore. And so finally, at the end of seven years, the Israelites cry out to God. Now, my question is, where were you seven years ago? Why, why weren't you crying out to God before all of this trauma happened? And there's a lot of similarities between this and uh, us today. A lot of times, we're not calling out to God when life is going well, but when life is going bad, we cry out to God. Well, here are the Israelites. They were in trouble for seven years, and so they cry out to God. And God, he does hear their cry. And God is, God is going to deliver them from the nation of Midian. And that's where Gideon comes into play. And Judges chapter 6, verses 11 reads, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And so here in verse 11, we see an angel of the Lord comes upon the scene. And an angel of the Lord approaches this man named Gideon. And this angel tells Gideon that, hey, listen up, God is with you. God is with you. And what, what's Gideon's reply? Please, come on, please, sir. If God is really with us, then why have all of these bad things happen to us? You know, when you hear something that you don't believe, you'll reply, please, come on. Like, if, we were to, if someone were to tell us today that Michigan State will beat Ohio State in football this year, unfortunately, we could all say, come on, please, that's not going to happen. Uh, as much as I wish that would happen, it's not going to happen, please. And so here, that's what Gideon is doing. He, he hears this, that God is with them. And it's like, please, please, God, God is not with us. Have you seen what is taking place to our brothers and sisters, the, these people of Midian, they are wreaking havoc upon us. And so then in verse 14, if we continue, it reads, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So here, if we remember in verse 11, it was an angel of the Lord that appeared to this scene. And now all of a sudden, verse 14, it says, the Lord turned to him and said. So hold up, that, that, you, should, you should stop and think about this a second. There's an angel and Gideon. Now all of a sudden, God is uh, taking place here. This is something that the Jews called agency, uh, a term that we've talked about before, a complex term, but basically an angel was representing God here. And so an angel is actually given the name of God. And so it's an angel that, that is turning to, to him. So the same angel is having this conversation um, with Gideon. He says, go in the might of yours and go save Israel from the hand of Midian. And so then Gideon replies in verse 15, and he said to him, you guessed it, please, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So as this angel tells Gideon to go save his people from the hand of Midian, he's like, please, man, I am the last pick. Uh, my, my clan is the least, the, the worst clan of the tribe of Manasseh, and of this clan, I am the least in my father's house. Please, come on. I am not the guy. I do not have this might. I'm not the guy to save the Israelites from the nation of Midian. But in the verse 16, it reads, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So what was this angel's response or this angel as he represented God when Midian had all of these issues? All Midian needed to hear was that God was with him. And it's true, God was with him. Even though Gideon was of the weakest clan and he was the weakest member of his father's house, he was certainly not on his own power, certainly not on his own will, would he be able to save the nation of Israel from Midian. However, 
God was with him. I will be with you. And so we see in Gideon, he, he takes this to heart. He says, all right, God is with me. And, and he asks God for clarification. He asks God for a sign. God, if you are really with me in this, then show me. And so throughout the rest of this chapter, uh, they, they perform uh, uh, different signs. Gideon, he, he goes and destroys an altar of Baal. And uh, we're skipping a lot there. But for the sake of time, we'll skip over that. In chapter 7 now, so after Gideon has been reaffirmed that God really is with him. In chapter 7, verse 1, we read, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, so just a different name for Gideon. So Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So Gideon, after he was reaffirmed that God was with him, Gideon, he rallied the men. He rallied the men of Israel, and they were going to go to battle against Midian. But here in chapter 7, God tells Midian, hey, man, you are taking too many people with you. If you were to go into battle uh, with these uh, 32,000 men, and if you guys have victory, you guys are going to claim the victory yourselves. So you're, you're making it too easy on yourself. It, it, it's, not, it's not feasible, but it's still possible that you could win. So send some of your men home. And so that's exactly what he does. Gideon says, whoever is fearful and trembling, uh, they uh, returned home. So that would be me. I would be part of that 22,000. Like, all right, peace. I'm out of here. I'm going home. Um, and, but but uh, 10,000 remain. And so we continue in verse 4, and it says, And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lap, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and, and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. I like this because God does things uh, in strange ways. So God says that, hey, listen, Gideon, there's still too many people. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to go down to this water. Your men, they need some water. And everybody who takes up the water like this and drinks it like a dog, uh, they, they're, they're going to stay with you. and They're going to go to battle with you. But everybody who kneels down to take a sip from the water, they are going to have to go home. And so they do this, and uh, Gideon takes with him the 300 men who lap the, uh, lap the water like this, like drink it like a dog. Um, and so 300 men are now with Gideon, and they are getting ready to go to war against the nation of Midian. So they started with 32,000 men, and now they are down to 300 men. 
and this detail hasn't been uh, brought to our attention yet, but they're going uh, to war against a nation that has 135,000 soldiers. Gideon and 300 men going to battle against 135,000 soldiers. The odds are not in their favor, but God is with them. God is with them. And so Gideon and his men, uh, they, they get ready uh, for war. Um, if we continue here, uh, God says, you know, the odds still are, are in our favor too much. You guys still might give yourself glory. So rather than going to war with swords, all we're going to take with us uh, to war is a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. So none of the men with Gideon, none of them took a sword with them to, to go and kill the enemy nation. They just brought a jar, a torch, and a trumpet to go to battle. 300 men against 135,000 men. And so they go and they do this. They, they follow God's direction and they go, they break their jars, they blow the trumpets. And this 135,000 men of Midian, they hear this and all of a sudden they go run away. They are running away. God's plan is working. That shouldn't come to a surprise to any of us. But God's plan is working and God sends uh, some sort of confusion over them. And now all of a sudden these people of Midian, they are killing themselves. They're killing one another. And so of this 100 135,000 soldiers, 120,000 of them killed one another. That's nuts. That's bizarre. You don't see that uh, in in history unless God is at work because God was with the Israelites all along. And so then they go and pursue uh, the rest of the men. They go and pursue the kings of Midian, and they go, they kill uh, the kings of Midian. It's a great story. We don't have time to read it, but it's a great story, the, the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8. You can read about them going to war with these trumpets and jars and torches. It, it, it's bizarre. But at the end of this war, after the Israelites had were, they were successful in this war, they had victory over the enemies. How do the people respond? We can start to see uh, the response um, starting in verse 22. The, the people want to make Gideon the king. Gideon in his humility says, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I love that response. But then uh, Gideon this is where he starts to falter. So from here, the, the story that we've read thus far, Gideon, he was an awesome, awesome guy. He had great humility. He followed the calling of God and led these 300 men to defeat 135,000 uh, numbered army. But then he wants to go and he wants to make an ephod out of the uh, gold from the people's earrings. And he does so. He makes this ephod, which is just a priestly garment, a fancy priestly garment. And in verse 27... Of chapter 8, we read, And Gideon made an ephod out of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so after Gideon and these 300 men, after they had success, after they had victory, they go home, they celebrate, and basically they're making a a, a trophy. That's basically what it is in our eyes today. They made a trophy out of it, something to represent the victory that they had. And with this trophy or with this afa that they had, this priestly garment, 
they all hoard after it. That's what uh, the, the, the translations say, the English Standard Version. They hoard after this uh, garment. They, they hoard after this uh, ephod, including Gideon and his family. And so now all of a sudden, with all this success that God has granted them, now they are whoring, they are lusting after this success. And now the same group of people whom God delivered from the Midian, now they value the success, they value this victory more than the one who gave it to them. They value their success over God. And what does that make it? That makes it an idol. They had an idol of success here, Gideon and his people. Just like that. Gideon was obedient. He followed the call of God. God granted them success. Again, success is not a bad thing. Success is a good thing. But they valued the success too much. They whored after the, this uh, fad that represented their victory. And because of that, they valued their victory over their God. And it served as a snare or it served as a trap to all of Israel and to Gideon and to his family. It happens just like that. It is that easy for success to become an idol in our lives. This is very, very easy to do in our society today. Very, very easy to prioritize and to value success more than God. And some of the times, some of the times when we have success, it's success given to us from God. You know, sometimes even in our ministry, sometimes when we have success in our ministry, we focus more on the success itself and we, we, we value that success more than our relationship with God. And so sometimes it's success that, that we have put a lot of hard work in, but sometimes success from God that we value more than God himself. And again, it is so, so easy. It's a natural thing for us to do, especially, I would say, here in America, where we value success, we, we, we value execution and, and good performance. You can climb up that ladder. And so I was getting ready uh, as, as I was studying uh, for this idol of success. Uh, I actually came uh, across an article um, from uh, the Working Woman of Faith. That's right, I read an article that was intended for women. It's 2021, I can do what I want. Um, uh, but in this uh, article, The Working uh, Woman of Faith, they demonstrated four ways in which we can keep success in check. Because if we don't keep success in check, then it's so easy for us to make it an idol in our lives. And so at these four things, we need to focus on four different aspects of the success that we receive in our lives. And the first aspect that we need to focus on is the source. We need to focus on the source. Remember, the source of your success is God and God alone. Thank him for it daily. Without God, none of us would be here. Without God, we would have zero success in our lives. So when you experience success, because I'm sure you all will experience success, I'm sure you'll experience success today, this week, in the month, in the coming year, I'm sure you all will uh, achieve much success, and that's good. But when you achieve that success, remember the source of that success. It all comes from God. Without God, we are nothing. 
for nothing. So remember the source. Second, focus on the heart. Do a daily check. What is your motive in every action? Does your heart align with God's heart? What is your purpose in doing the work that you seek to accomplish? Is your objective in life to grow closer to God and expand his kingdom? Or when you do this daily heart check, do, do you realize that, hey, maybe your, your heart isn't lined up with God's heart and you're valuing, you're prioritizing, uh, climbing up the social ladder more? I don't know, but, but focus on your heart. Do a daily heart check. What are your motives in every action? And does it align with what God wants for you? So the source and the heart. And the third, focus on the head. We need to think straight by renewing your mind daily with God's word. Are you listening to the warnings and the concerns of others when they point out areas where you may be slipping? So put your thoughts, put your focus on God. We put our thoughts, we put our focus on God by reading his word and praying to him. Then we could be reminded why we're doing it all along. So think about God. Have God in your head all the time. And then finally, number four, focus on the hands. Keep serving others. Keep serving others. Serving others keeps you from thinking too much about yourself. Because a lot of times when we achieve all of, this, all of this success, we think we are the greatest thing in the world. And we make ourselves out to be a God. But when we have a servant's heart, just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are going out and we are serving the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are serving the needs of the people outside of the church, then you can remember, it's not about you. It's not about you. And so focus on your hands and serving others. And so we have to be aware of this idol of success. It is so easy. It is a natural thing to do for us to value success more than God if you don't put it in check. And so if you are someone who struggles with this idol of success, I encourage you to put your focus on loving God more. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. Father God, we thank you for this group of believers. Father God, we thank you for the success that you've given to each and every one of us. Father, it's our prayer this morning that each and every one of us, when we experience success in our lives, that we attribute it to you, that you are the source of all of our success, that we put our heart and our mind and our actions towards you, and our focus is on you that we can keep our success in check. Father, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.